I'm not awake this morning. Let's go. Um, I don't know if you've ever heard of the Mandela effect. Somebody brought up uh, Mandela in class this morning. So this last week, I was having fun researching this idea that's called the Mandela effect. It's named after um, a phenomenon that happened in the 80s when uh, most of our society was convinced that Nelson Mandela died in prison. It was a collective memory that everyone shared until he became president. And then they thought, what happened? And it was a glitch in history. And if you look up Mandela Effect online now, there's all kinds of conspiracy theorists that believe in time travel or weird things that happen to mess up our collective memory of things. So you apply the Mandela Effect to a lot of things. I'm going to give you just a few of them. Humphrey Bogart never said, play it again, Sam. Ricky Ricardo actually never said, Lucy, you got some splaining to do. Joe Friday never said just the facts, ma'am. The words, beam me up, Scotty, never, ever were spoken in Star Wars or Star Trek. (laughs) I don't care about Star Trek. I like the other one. Darth Vader never said, Luke, I'm your father. Forrest Gump never said, life is like a box of chocolates. Now, I know some of y'all are going to get upset now. You're going to lose me for the rest of the sermon, and you're going to get online and prove me wrong. He never said that. He said life was like a box of chocolates. The wicked queen never said mirror, mirror on the wall. Mr. Rogers never said it's a beautiful day in the neighborhood. He said it's a beautiful day in this neighborhood. There have always been 50 states. There are not 52 states in the United States. If you grew up in my generation, you were taught, I know you were taught there were 52. There are not 52 states. Unless you grew up in Oklahoma, you were more educated. Okay. Uh, Okay. Um, Let's see. Um, There were not three kings that came to visit Jesus. There were not three wise men that came to visit Jesus. Um, How about this one? Angels never sing, not once, in Scripture. Um, Let's see. We are not waiting for a rapture. Nothing about a rapture in Scripture. How about this one? This one really floored me. The lion never lays down with the lamb ever in Scripture. That's not something that happens in Scripture. It's the wolf that lays down with the, is not uh, that lies down with the lamb in Scripture. All of these are referred to as the Mandela effect. You grow up with something, and everyone has a collective memory, and it turns out collectively you're wrong. Um, we we get these images and these ideas and these false memories based on paintings, based on songs, based on a lot of things like that. Um, So I'm going to take you to Luke 22, and there's a few examples of this in Luke 22. Some ideas that we have, even one that we sung about this morning, that is not true and is not part of Luke 22. And so I want to take a close look at the, the scene that is taking place in Gethsemane and reevaluate what we're supposed to take from Gethsemane um, here in just a moment. So the first one is this. These are, these are books, sermons, sermon series, anything I've looked up on, on um, the Passover meal. Half of them have to do with the four cups. Some of y'all have heard some of these. 
uh, that the idea that there were four cups as part of the Passover meal, that there was this extended what would be called a Seder or order of worship in which you would have um, the lamb, you would have the bitter herbs, you would have all of these parts of a plate and you would have four cups. And scholars have carefully evaluated the Last Supper and said, which cup was Jesus taking at what point? All of it a myth. Um, that didn't come about until the second or third century. In the time Jesus took the Passover meal, it was not four cups and this extended. It was actually as simple as it looks. Um, I contacted some Jewish scholars this week to just say, hey, am I right on this? They said, absolutely. What you see is what you get. There was a cup. There was unleavened bread and there were bitter herbs. The reason they took these things, and I'm going to take you back to Exodus in a second. The reason they took these things is because they were remembering this harsh time in the wilderness. This cup represented this pouring out for them of a lamb's blood. That through a night of darkness, through a night of pain, through a night of hardship, they were marked by the blood of a, of, of a lamb on their doors. And they would exit through a, an entire nation that had been just gone through the darkest night imaginable. And we're told in Exodus that the Lord kept vigil over them that night. They were marked by this blood and they were able to pass out into freedom in the morning. And so when the Jews took the Passover meal, they took a cup and it represented the protection of the Lord, this blood that had been poured out for them. They took the manna because the manna represented the, well, the, the manna that fell from heaven and God's provision in the wilderness. The bitter herbs, how about this? Most Jews believe they represented the fact that they ate weeds in the wilderness. They had to survive off of the land and they had to take the bitter herbs, which just represented what you could get to survive, to sustain yourself. So they took this meal and Jesus in taking this meal, we're going to come back to what's happening there, um, identifies himself with those, those parts of it. This is the one that really got me. I don't want to lose you here because you're not going to believe what I'm about to say. We just sang a song about the Garden of Gethsemane. There's no such thing as the Garden of Gethsemane. Now you're messed up. Never once in the Bible does Gethsemane called a garden. Jesus was probably not in a garden this night. Um, now I know you're going to get on your phones and you're going to try to prove it. I promise you he was resurrected in a garden. Uh, in his resurrection, Mary thought he was the gardener. It says he was in a garden. Gethsemane probably was not a garden. And so this image that we have of this, is it's probably a cave. Uh, there's a cave on the Mount of Olives that is a site of an ancient olive press, which would be called Gethsemane. Probably this is where they were. And so all of these images that we have, Jesus in a garden um, after this Passover meal, a lot of it is rooted in um, the movies that we've watched, the songs that we've sung, the paintings that we've seen, but it's not actually from Scripture. I'm, say, I'm saying all of this to bring you into these moments in the garden that I'm going to try to give a different perspective of what's happening when Jesus says, let this cup pass from me. What's really happening here, and the question is, is he calling an audible in history? Is he saying, um, we've built this plan up for, for thousands of years, but it's going to hurt, so I don't want to do it now. I'm going to contend that that is not at all what's happening this night. Okay, so we're going to come into that in a minute. These are all the different images of Jesus that we have. Um, you have an image of Christ and I have an image of Christ. And when I get into these types of texts, I'm on sacred ground because there is no one more important likely in your life than this man, Jesus Christ. 
And your relationship with him and your knowledge of him is extremely personal. And these last few hours of his life are some of the most sacred moments. And every statement that Jesus makes from this point to the cross to the resurrection is so crucial to the church. People divide over this stuff. And so I know it's sacred ground. But you develop your image of Jesus based on the movies that you watch, the flannel graph stories that your mom made you go through. Um, I'm talking personally. Every Sunday morning before she taught class, she practiced on me. At least that's how I remember and the paintings of Jesus that are based on some kind of, I can't remember this, where we got this image from, but Jesus probably looked nothing like any of these. Uh, we have no clue what Jesus looked like, not even remotely. Um, and the truth is, I think a lot of our image of who he was as a person, some of you imagine Jesus as a person that told jokes around a campfire. Um, did his feet stink? Did, 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 did he get sick? When he stubbed his toe, did it hurt? When he cut himself, did he bleed? Did he get diseases? I think absolutely. He was a man. He was entirely a man. He knew what it was to sweat. He knew what it was to hurt. He knew what it was to go through all of this. But he also had the power of an indestructible life. He also was the image of God. He also was the, Hebrews 1 says, the exact representation of him. He was the radiance of God. He he was God in the flesh, but he also knew what it was to hurt and to suffer. And so I want to go back and revisit this image of Christ and the message that I think we're supposed to pull out of Luke 22. So let's, let me take you uh, to verse 39. It says this, Jesus went out as usual to the Mount of Olives and his disciples followed him. On reaching the place, he said to them, pray that you will not fall into temptation. He withdrew about a stone's throw beyond them, knelt down and prayed, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. Um, I want to bring you back to the Passover meal, and then we're going to kind of visit visit this verse. I want to begin by talking about what we do know happened this evening. We went from the most beautiful scene, John 13, of Jesus washing the disciples' feet, saying, if you love one another, all men will know that you are from me. And This beautiful, intimate scene. And then that scene closes with these words, all of you will fall away. You will all be sifted like wheat. Before this night's over, Peter, you're going to betray me. One of you is going to disown me. This language of this dark night that is approaching is what separates the Mount of Olives from Jesus washing the disciples' feet in the Passover meal. And that's why when the disciples go out, we know this. It says Jesus was sorrowful to the point of death. It says this about the disciples. You know how they couldn't stay awake? It says the reason that they were so tired is that they were worn out by sorrow. Why is all of a sudden this night everybody so full of darkness, so full of sorrow? Because Jesus had just spoken these words. You're going to be sifted like wheat. Some of you are going to fall away. Some of you are going to betray me. And Peter was the one that was said, he was resolute. I would never betray you. And can you imagine if it was you, if Jesus spoke those words to you tonight, you will betray me. Man, I would be just like Peter. I would say that's not possible. I will do everything in my power to make sure that doesn't happen. I'm going to drink a bottle of NyQuil. I promise you, I'm not going to betray you tonight. 
And that's how it is in our lives. It's you're so confident. Things are going so well. And darkness is inevitable. And the hour of darkness is inevitable. I really appreciated class this morning when we talked about one thing that I think is largely misunderstood in Scripture. Where if I were to ask a lot of people, does Scripture say, rejoice always, be joyful at all times? Does the Bible say that? No. It says rejoice in the Lord always. And there's a powerful difference between these two ideas. Let me explain. The worst night of my life I I spent with Brad. Now, that's not surprising, but we were on Mount Elbert, and I will never forget this night um, that we decided, this group we were with decided to summit Mount Elbert in the middle of the night. And um, Jason, I can't remember, were you on this one? These were rough times. And, and, and we got up above Timberline, and it is absolutely freezing cold and wind was hitting the mountain. I remember some of our boys, their lips were turning blue. It was that kind of cold. And one of my girls didn't bring a jacket. And so I took off my jacket and thought I was being noble, going to this word we used in class, and gave her my jacket. Five minutes later, I was like, I'm going to let you suffer. I need my jacket back. But I remember I didn't do that, but I gave her my jacket and in short sleeves and bitter cold in the middle of the night, I was on a mountain and I remember praying to God for the sun to rise. And I, I take the sun for granted every day of my life, but that night there's nothing that meant more to me than the sun. Now, I rejoiced in the idea of the sunrise. That didn't mean what I was going through was joyful. But the sun was a source of joy in my worst darkness. And that's why I really appreciated the comments that were made in class this morning. It was someone, someone said, you know, what about rejoice in the Lord always? What about when my son dies? What about when I'm going through loss? What about when I'm diagnosed with cancer? What about then? Especially then. When the night is the darkest is when the sun means the most. It doesn't mean you're rejoicing in your circumstances. In fact, Jesus is defined in Scripture as a man of sorrow. And I believe this, that the more acquainted we become with Christ, and the more acquainted we become with His path, the more acquainted we become with sorrow. I think this life is full of sorrow. And I don't think it makes somebody more of a Christian if they're less sorrowful. In fact, I think you're more like Christ when you really acquaint yourself with sorrow. If I really understood the depth of my sin, if I really understood the grip Satan has on our society, if I really understood what lostness is, that's sorrow. Jesus was a man of wisdom and he was a man of sorrow. And that night... He was full of sorrow, and so were the disciples because of godly reasons. And I believe that our life also often is full of sorrow. But in the Lord, I will rejoice always. And here's why. Because everything that brings sorrow in this life, sin, death, guilt, pain, God gives us this message throughout Scripture. It's temporary. I have the amen. Even on death, I have the amen. Paul said it this way. Uh, well, first Psalm 30, I think verse 5 says this. Suffering will endure for a night, but joy comes in the morning. 
Paul talked about death and destruction and everything they were going through as light and momentary afflictions. Why? Because he looked to the sunrise. He didn't celebrate the pain, but he looked to the sun and he said, God is, has promised something better. So this is what I want to bring us to in Jesus' words. Um, let this cut pass. Is he asking for a way out? I want to give you some reasons I do not believe that's what's happening. I do not believe that for 2,000, no, more than that, years of history where this is the entire plan of salvation from the beginning of time, that the night before, and he had just said on the other side of the river, this cup is a new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. This is what's happening. He said over and over, this is the game plan. This is why I came. I do not believe he stopped and said, but it's going to hurt. Let's do that a different way. I don't think so. First, John 12, 27 says, what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No. It's for this hour that I came. Secondly, he consistently taught that the cross was his destiny and his mission. The very fulfillment of all prophecy. Our earliest, our earliest writers, this one might bore you, but this is important to me. We're talking about the men that sat at the feet of the disciples. You know, Irenaeus, these guys. Our very earliest writers on the subject, Justin Martyr, Origen, uh, Dionysus, they held a much different view. None of them taught that Jesus was praying to be delivered from the cross itself. Um, and let, let this cut pass is, is Passover language. I want to explain that in just a minute, why he uses that phrase. Now, some of your Bibles say, take this cup from me. Um, the Greek word for take is used over 500 times in the New Testament. It's not used here. The word that's used here is pass, let it pass. I want to explain why I think he used uh, that imagery. Um, at the Passover meal, the cup would be poured out. And like I said, there was probably just one cup. Um, a cup would be poured out. And, and this meal is richly symbolic. We know that. And he poured a cup that represented the blood of the lamb and the exodus and the Passover. They had celebrated this for, for millennia. And now he says this, this cup is a new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. And he would drink the cup, and he would pass it to his disciples. Now, he just told us this. This cup represents something. What? What's about to be accomplished on the cross. This cup represents what's about to take place. Let this cup pass from me. Did you know that that night... They sang a psalm together. We know what psalm it was. Historically, all Jews, even to this day, celebrate Passover with the singing of what's called the Hallel. Psalm 113 through 118. On the specific night, I just want to read some verses from Psalm 116. These would have been part of the hymn that Jesus sung that very evening. He raises the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap. He seats them with princes. This has been Jesus' ministry. How can I repay the Lord for all his goodness to me? I will lift up the cup of salvation and call on the name of the Lord. I will fulfill my vows to the Lord in the presence of all his people. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. That's what he sang that evening. The stone the builders rejected has become the capstone. The Lord has done this. It's marvelous in our eyes. 
This is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Do you know that Luke has been quoting all of this for the last previous, the previous chapters? Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. From the house of the Lord we bless you. With bows in hand, join in the festal procession up to the horns of the altar. You're looking at Luke 16 as being played out in these chapters, uh, in these last chapters of Luke. Um, I'm, I'm sorry, Psalm 116 is being played out. And in just a moment, we're going to switch gears. And in a couple of weeks, we're going to be at the cross. And at the cross, it's going to be Psalm 22. And everything that is taking place is coming right out of Psalm 22. Right now, I think we're in Psalm 116. So what I believe is happening here is he's saying this. Father, let this cup, this cup of said with this, let this pass from me. I want to get this, I want to get this over with. I want to go through this. I want, I want to pour out my blood. I want to be, I want to be the, the savior, but I don't think he's saying, Jesus, God, don't let the cross happen. He's saying this. The night is dark. There is suffering. We're going through a dark time, but I pray that I would be delivered from death. The Hebrew writer says this. Jesus cries. I think he's referring to this night. He says, he lifted up cries and petitions to the one who could save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverent submission. Hebrews indicates that God's answer to this prayer was not no. But his answer to this prayer was yes. I'm going to explain a little bit of that in a minute. But I really want to get to the verses that I wanted to focus on this morning. Um, going on in, in the text, I'm going to kind of bring us to uh, these, these closing verses. Um, Uh, but Luke 22, I just want to begin reading in verse 45 after what we just said. It says this, When he rose from prayer, he went back to the disciples and, and found them asleep, exhausted from sorrow. Why are you sleeping, he asked them. Get up and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. While he was still speaking, a crowd came up, and the man who was called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. He approached Jesus to kiss him, but Jesus asked him, Judas... Are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? When Jesus' followers saw what was going to happen, they said, Lord, should we strike with our swords? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his right ear. Jesus answered, No more of this. And he touched the man's ear and healed him. Then Jesus said to the chief priests, the officers of the temple guard, and the elders who had come for him, Am I leading a rebellion? that you've come with swords and clubs. Every day I was with you in the temple courts. You did not lay a hand on me, but this is your hour when darkness reigns. I love the language he uses there because he says this. Uh, First off, he's accusing them of being cowards. Every day I was in the temple courts teaching and you didn't do this because your hour is the hour of darkness where you're going to hide your evil deeds. And, and And the truth is, he calls it an hour. This is your hour because it's so temporary. And I'm about to conquer death once for all. I'm about to do this. But your hour is the hour of darkness. And that's what he was entering into. What happens next is this. Judas goes out and weeps bitterly because he had betrayed Christ. Peter goes out and weeps bitterly because he had also betrayed Christ. Every single one of us, I believe this. I really do believe this. We know what Gethsemane is. We know what the hour of darkness is. We know what it is to celebrate life in Christ. 
and to find ourselves completely burdened down and lost in sin, even after receiving Christ and being confident that, man, when I was baptized into Christ, and you're probably like me, I still remember the day. I remember exactly what was going on. I was baptized into Christ, and then from then forward, it was going to be a new creation. All things were going to be new. Joy. And then what happens? Sin still reigns in my mortal body. To this day. And it makes me sick. And it's the darkness that's still there. The stuff that's still in your head. The stuff that's still in your actions. All of that. And God makes this promise, man. Through all of it, suffering will endure for a night. But joy comes in the morning. He's conquered sin. Not my old sins. He's conquered my current sins. He's conquered life. He's conquered all of this for me. And so these two people that are out in the darkness represent us. One goes out and just says, you know what? I give up. I I couldn't do it. My sin has consumed me. My guilt has consumed me. The darkness consumes him. And Judas goes out and hangs himself. Peter, after denying Christ three times, is restored in his faith. And Christ had prayed this prayer over him. He said this, man, I've prayed for you, Peter. I've prayed that after you have suffered, that you would come back and strengthen your brothers. That you would come back and let God restore light to you. Um, I'm not taking away in this sermon, I hope you don't hear this. I'm not taking away from Christ's humanity. He bled. He sneezed. But did Jesus suffer from doubt? Did he suffer from anxiety? Did the one who said, don't fear man who can hurt your body, fear man who could hurt his body? I know we're going to disagree on this point, but my answer is no. I believe that in participating in humanity, the book of Hebrews, it is not saying he participated in our fallen state. He participated in our flesh. He participated in that. But Jesus represents something that I can look to, that Paul looked to, that the disciples looked to as somebody who saw a bigger picture than all of that. Um, The cross was not joy to Christ. But for the joy that was set before him, he endured that cross, despising its shame. And I look at this passage and what's about to happen in the coming weeks and some of the darkest hours. And I feel like we're still there. And I feel like Gethsemane is a reality to us. There are people in this room right now that are in an incredibly dark place. Tim's comments meant the world to me today. Because I think it's from that place that the gospel shines the brightest. And I don't think that church is a place where we're dancing and celebrating and saying, you know what, none of that stuff matters. I'm a joyful person. That's never been what church meant. It's in the darkest, most worst place in your life where there's no reason to smile at all. And you're losing friends and you're losing family and your own sin weighs on you and all of this. That's when the resurrection to me means the most. Whatever you're suffering suffering through, and I want to lift you up in prayer privately, not privately, personally, this morning. Whatever you might be suffering through. The message I find in Luke 22 is this. It's temporary. 
All of it is. And there's going to come a day when we experience a joy that is not temporal. One of the most beautiful songs I believe we sing is, you know, when I've been there a thousand years, bright shining as the sun, I, I, don't, I don't have any less time to sing his praise than when I first began. It's, it's that. It's about living for eternity. Um, that gives me hope, and I pray it gives you hope this morning. Um, I want to pray that we feel the sorrow that Christ felt in the garden. I honestly don't believe that sorrow. And talk to me, email me. I love to discuss these things. I just don't personally believe that sorrow was rooted in the fact that tonight was going to hurt. I think that sorrow is rooted in the fact that he's about to lose his children that he loves. I think that sorrow is rooted in the fact that darkness is coming upon all of the disciples. And that's why he keeps going and begging them, pray that you don't fall into temptation. Pray that you stay awake. Pray that you stay alert. Jesus has incredible love for his disciples. He's praying that same prayer today. And I want to come before him and just lift up this body and lift up our own suffering and the darkness that we go through and pray that um, not that we'll be fake, dance around and pretend like life isn't hard, but that we'll celebrate Christ for what hope he represents in the darkness. Let's pray. Uh, my God, I just I want to come before you. And I want to ask that, um, uh, that you give us wisdom. Uh, God, to, um, to look up and to see the hope that you, you have laid out for us. Uh, God, not to, um, not to think that we have to walk in this world and impress one another by being more joyful than other people, but, but God, celebrating who Christ is in the midst of our darkness. Um, I pray that you bring us into a, a closer perspective of who Christ is, what happened in the garden. And um, I pray that we would find in Christ a merciful and faithful high priest, tested in every way that we've been tested by God without sin. And that we wouldn't necessarily find in him someone who's exactly like us in our darkness. But Father, somebody who didn't come to reflect us, but somebody who came so that we might reflect him. I pray, Father, that the Gethsemane would not simply be a song, it would not simply be a story, but it would be something that we, we feel a part of, that we experience ourselves. I love you so much for the wisdom of Christ, the hope he provides. It's in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand and worship our God.